Well, good morning, church. Good to see you again today. Um, as, um, as you know, has been advertised, next Sunday is our last service here as a family. And just to let you know what's happening with us is in December, we're still going to be around. We're going to be packing up our house and getting ready to leave. Then we'll be leaving uh, Adelaide on the 29th of December. And uh, we'll be having getting settled in December and January in, uh, in Queensland. Uh, then in February and March, that's when I'll be going on my sabbatical proper, and so I'll be resting and refreshing, uh, taking some of my long service leave. And then in April and May, we're going to be seeking the Lord as to what God would have for us. And so just as I'm going to be praying for you and the land across the road, as whether God wants you as a church to have that, I would love if some of you would commit to praying for me and Tegan. And to facilitate that, we have at the information desk, we have a, a clipboard and you can fill out your name if you would love to pray for us. I will be sending updates and sending emails to those people, just letting them know how we're doing, what they can be praying for us about. But let's come to God's word today and let's pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you for your word and we come today and I pray that you might speak to us and that it mightn't be the voice of a man, but it might be your voice speaking to us and nourishing our faith and challenging us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study in the book of Joshua, and we've come to Joshua chapter 7. Now, when you're studying the Bible, uh, it's important to note that chapter divisions weren't part of the original text of the Bible. They were added much later, and they are helpful. They help us to find, you know, a passage of Scripture really, really quickly, and so for that, we're very, very thankful. But one of the things about chapter divisions is that chapter divisions make us think about the story of the Bible and the chapters of the Bible in very isolated ways. We don't necessarily see the connection between the various chapters in the Bible. Take, for example, this first verse of chapter 7 and verse 1. Look down your Bibles. You will notice that chapter 7 begins with the word but. The word but in English is a conjunction. It is a word that implies a contrast. So chapter 7, the things that are happening in chapter 7 are going to be in contrast to what occurred in chapter 6 of Joshua. And if you just scan your eyes down to the end of chapter, of chapter 6 of Joshua, you'll notice in verse 27, the author writes this. He says, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout all the land. So for the past six chapters... Everything has been going great. I mean, Israel has been nothing like their parents. They've crossed over the Jordan. They've marched around the city of Jericho. They've seen the walls come falling down. So they've seen God's power at work. God's fame has been upon, God's blessing has been upon Israel, and Joshua's fame is spreading. But then we come into chapter 7, and it says, but... <laughs> Chapter 7 is going to have a completely different tone to chapter 6. You see, back in chapter 6, when the people were going into Jericho, God said to the people through Joshua that they were to devote the city to destruction, complete destruction. And he said to them, he said, you, uh, you are to keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. 
All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into the treasury. So as they came into Jericho, they were to devote the city to destruction and all the gold and the silver and the iron and the bronze that was to be given to the Lord in honor of the Lord. And the Lord said that there was a serious consequence if they took any of the devoted things. They themselves would be devoted to destruction, but also they would bring trouble on the entire nation. And every one of the the 30, more than 30,000 soldiers heard the instruction from the Lord through Joshua, and they all obeyed, obeyed it, everyone except a man named Achan. As we read in verse 1, it says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Kami, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Now notice in verse 1, it says that Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. It doesn't say Achan broke faith in regard to the devoted things. It says Israel broke faith. Now, this might seem unfair. I mean, why is the whole nation being held accountable for one guy's sin? Why is, the, why is the anger of the Lord burning against Israel when it was Achan who sinned? Well, as we've seen, God was only following through on what he'd already said. He said, if any one of you take the devoted things, then I'll bring my judgment on the entire camp. You see, I think what God was teaching them was a very important truth about sin. And that is this, is that the sin of one can affect everyone. Now, in our individualistic society, we don't like to think that our sin can affect anyone else. We like to compartmentalize our sin. We like to think that our sin only affects ourselves. But that's just not true. You see, your sin can affect your family. It can affect those people around you. And yes, your sin can affect the health of the church that you belong to. You know, in the church in Corinth, there was a man who was openly practicing sexual immorality. The type of sexual immorality that the Apostle Paul said even the people outside of the church would raise an eyebrow at. It seems that a man was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, it probably wasn't his natural mother. It was probably his stepmother. But still, Paul says, even the people outside of the church would think that was a scandal. And yet this man was boasting about it. He was probably boasting about the freedom he had in Christ, that he could do such a thing. And Paul tells the Corinthian church that they need to deal with it because he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If you let this sin go unchecked, Paul says, it'll affect the entire community, the entire church. You know, I've been doing a lot of cooking this year just to help out my family. And uh, one of the things that I've learned is the importance of different ingredients. I don't know if you've heard about HelloFresh, but HelloFresh is this company. And what they do is they provide all the ingredients for you. So every Saturday, there'll be this box that arrives on my doorstep. And in it are all the different ingredients wrapped in bags for all the different meals. And they provide a recipe. And all you need to do is just follow the recipe and voila, <laughs> you have a, a delicious meal to eat. And you know what I found out in cooking, because I've never really done any cooking before, is that if you put in, if you fail to put in an ingredient, or you read the recipe wrong, and you put in the wrong ingredient, 
then it affects the entire taste of the entire meal. You know, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, the type of sin that we're speaking about here is not the type of sin that we regularly fight against in our lives. You know, we are all dealing with personal sin in our lives. No one here is sinless. We're all in the process of sanctification, and God is progressively pointing out sin in our lives, and we're repenting of that and forsaking it. No, that's not what we're talking about here. You see, Achan's sin was a deliberate act of disobedience against the revealed will of God. He took the devoted things, even though he knew what the consequence would be and how it would affect everyone. And he went on pretending as if everything was okay. He went on pretending if, as if everything was normal, knowing full well what he had done. You know, one of the verses that my father used to quote to me growing up that became lodged in my brain was Numbers 33, 23. <laughs> it says this, Be sure your sin will find you out. My dad used to say that to me. He used to say, Timmy, on my way to school, Timmy, you can be sure your sin will find you out. Now, as I've thought about that verse um, this week, I've thought, you know, it's interesting. The verse doesn't say, you can be sure your wife will find you out if you sin. Now, she probably will. <laughs> or you can be sure other people will find you out. Now, the verse says, you can be sure your sin will find you out. You see, sin is, sin is not static. We like to think we can keep our sin compartmentalized in one part of our life. But the thing about sin is that sin grows. And what you've tried to keep hidden in the dark, it won't be too long before it comes out into the light one way or another. You know, there may be someone here today and you're living a double life. No one knows it, but you have a big secret. And like Achan, you think it's well hidden. You've hidden it in the tent, buried in a hole, but it's not buried and not hidden from the eyes of one who searches all of our hearts. And he wants you to bring that sin out in the open so it can be confessed and cleansed and you can be healed. And sin has consequences. God had said that if one of them were to take the devoted things as we've seen, it would not only bring destruction upon them, but it also on the whole camp. And we read about this in verse 2. Look down your Bibles. We read in verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and they spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not, we do not have to, do not, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So they had defeated Jericho, this huge fortified city. And then they came to Ai, just a little town in the hills, a little bit like um, the town of Strathalban to Adelaide. And the spies said, you know, this little town, it will be no match for us. We've got this. <laughs> we don't even have to send the whole army. Just send two or 3,000 men don't trouble the whole army. We've got this one. We'll look down in verse 4. We see what happens. So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabaim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. You know, as I was studying the passage this week, I wrote down this question. 
In verse 1, it says that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. So I ask the question, how was the anger of the Lord expressed in this incident? How did the anger of the Lord burn against Israel? Well, I think the anger of the Lord, or the discipline of the Lord, burned against Israel by him removing his empowering presence and just allowing them to operate in their own strength. As we've already seen, when they saw Ai, they thought, we've got this. <laughs> Ai is only a small town. We can handle this. We don't even have to send up the whole army, just send two or 3,000. It'll be right. But you see, pride comes before a fall. And this small town drove them back down the hill, killing 36 men. And it says their hearts melted and they became like water. You see, God had promised them the victory. He had promised them the land. He would promised that not even one of them would die if they obeyed him. And now at the hands of this little town, 36 men had been killed. And their hearts melted and became as water. You know, water is fluid. And so this is like describing their thoughts within them. Their thoughts were racing around. And that word melted, we've seen that being used before in the book of Joshua. It was used of the Canaanites. And when the Canaanites heard what the Lord had done, the Canaanites' hearts melted within them. So Israel lost all of their courage, all of their confidence. They were confused. Their thoughts were racing within them. They were filled with fear. They didn't understand what was going on. So what did Joshua do? Well, Joshua stands as an example of what we should do when we are afraid and confused. When we don't understand what's going on in our circumstances, when our thoughts are racing within us. You see, instead of running away from God, Joshua runs to God. Look down in verse 6, we read this. Then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel... And they put dust on their heads. So instead of running away from God, Joshua ran to God in the midst of his fear and confusion, not knowing what was going on. He, he put dust upon his head. This was a sign of grief. He was sad. 36 men had died in a battle that was, should have been so easy for them to win. I mean, it would have left Joshua scratching his head. It was so confusing. And he didn't try to analyze or strategize or think about what went wrong. You know, he realized at the root of the problem, there was something wrong in his relationship with God. You know, often when things aren't going as I expect in my life or in the church, you know, I can spend hours of time, hours of time thinking about what went wrong, what I should have done, thinking about my efforts and my strategy. And often it's only after I've exhausted all of my thinking and talked to every person that I could possibly talk to that I then turn to God and talk to him. Well, look down in verse 7. Joshua says, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? You see, Joshua didn't understand what was going on. It didn't make sense. Just a few days before that experience, this great victory... God had miraculously caused the city walls of Jericho to come falling down, but now they've suffered a humiliating defeat. 
Remember, Joshua and the elders did not know what Achan had done. Up to this point in the story, Joshua and the elders had no idea that Achan had taken the devoted things, causing the anger of the Lord to come upon Israel. And so that's why he was saying, why God? Why is this happening? You know, our Heavenly Father doesn't mind us bringing our honest questions and confusion to Him. In fact, I would say that it is actually a sign of maturity that when you encounter difficult circumstances that you don't understand, it's a sign of maturity that you run to God and not away from God. It's a demonstration actually of faith that you come to Him and you honestly pour out your heart before Him. Now, Joshua's honesty does border on blaming and accusing God for the situation. Notice that he goes on to say, Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. You can see that it doesn't even enter Joshua's mind that he or the people might be to blame. You know, he is just wrapped up in what it means for him and what it means for the people. You know, and we're often exactly the same. When we encounter something that we don't understand and our thoughts are racing within us, we're often just thinking about ourselves and how the situation affects us. It doesn't really enter our minds that much that it may be because of us that we are in this situation. But what redeems this prayer and saves it from blasphemy is the way that Joshua ends. Look at the end of the prayer. He says to the Lord, and what will you do for your great name? You see, Joshua realizes that it's ultimately not about him, or it's not about Israel, but it's about the Lord. It's about his reputation. You know, if they're destroyed in the land... And what will that mean for the Lord's reputation? The Lord had said to them, I am going to give you this land. And if they're destroyed, what will that say about him? You know, often in prayer, it's not so important about where you start, but it's more important where you finish. You see, Joshua begins by honestly expressing his confusion, and he almost accuses God and blames him for the situation. But he finishes by acknowledging that it's not about him. It's about the fame. It's about the reputation. It's about the name of God. It's about God Almighty and his fame and his name. You know, maybe you're here today and you've encountered a situation that you don't understand. Your thoughts are racing within you. You're afraid. You're confused. Well, as I said, your heavenly Father longs for you to come to him and pour out your heart honestly before him. But remember, it's not so important where you begin in prayer, but it is important where you end. End by acknowledging that it's all about him and call upon him to vindicate his great name. Well, the Lord answers Joshua... Look down in verse 10, the Lord says to Joshua, get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, they have taken some of the devoted things, they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. You think that I'm to blame, Joshua? I'm not to blame, it's, 
It's Israel who has sinned. There is sin in the camp. Look down in verse 12. Therefore, Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. You know, when we harbor sin in our lives and grieve the Holy Spirit, we lose God's favor upon our life. Now, it's not as if we lose his love and acceptance because we'll always be his children. You know, your relationship with God is not like a switch that you can turn on and off. No, because of justification, the moment that you trusted in Christ, you have been declared righteous. You are his child. But it's still true that God will not bless over the long haul churches or people who live in willful rebellion against him. People who grieve the Holy Spirit by holding on to that which is devoted to destruction. Maybe the empowering presence of God has dried up in your life. And this is because there is undealt with sin in your life. Look down in verse 13. The Lord says to Joshua a second time. He says, get up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In other words, the Lord is saying to the people, you will not be able to experience victory again unless you deal with the sin that is in the camp. You can send out as much spies as you like. You can come up with the greatest strategy. You can sharpen your weapons for war. But you will not experience victory outside of the camp until you've dealt with the sin that's inside of the camp. You know, the same is true for us. And the same is true for you, City Reach Oakton. You know, you won't be able to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And this church won't be able to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit if there is undealt with sin in the lives of people, in the lives of members in the church, if there are people in open rebellion against God in the church. You know, it's easy to think that we can just keep on going on in our own strength. We can do it in our own strength. You know, we won't send up 3,000, we'll send up the whole army. But the Lord says it doesn't matter how many people you send. He says, unless you take away the devoted things, you will not be able to stand before your enemies. So God is saying to Joshua, consecrate yourselves, and tomorrow I will expose the sin that's in the camp. Now in the morning, the Lord had all the tribes and the clans and the families appear before him, and the lot was cast. You know, in the Levitical priests, part of their garment was the ermin and the thummin, <laughs> these lots. It was a way of determining the will of God. And the lot was cast, and it fell to the tribe of Judah. And then the lot was cast again, and it fell to the clan of the Zerites. And then it was narrowed down some more to the household of Zabdi. And then finally, the lot was cast, and Achan was standing all alone. You know, it's surprising to me that Achan didn't come forward straight away. I mean, as soon as God told the people to consecrate the people, consecrate themselves, it's surprising to me that he didn't rushed forward and fall on his face and said, I sinned. And it's surprising to me that he didn't say anything when his tribe was identified, and then his clan was identified, and then his household was identified. And it's really shocking that even when he was standing there alone, 
It took Joshua to say to him, my son, give glory to the God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me because he was just standing there silent. You see, I think what we see here is the deceitfulness of sin. You know, sin deceives us into thinking that it's not a big deal if we sin and no one will ever find out. You know, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul says the sins of some people are conspicuous, meaning that they are clearly visible, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. You know, it is interesting that the Lord sometimes chooses to expose people's sin before judgment day, like he did with Achan, whereas with others it's only exposed after they die or maybe exposed on judgment day. But here's the thing, it will eventually be exposed. As my father used to say, you can be sure your sins will find you out. So you either confess your sins early and experience his cleansing and his grace, or you can have him expose them later. And I think Achan's was exposed later You see, I think that Achan's response to Joshua was not an honest, heartfelt confession of sin, but just a mere admission of the truth. He had been found out and there was no hiding. Achan answered Joshua, he said, truly I sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, from Achan's response, I think we can see how sin can get a grip in our lives. It all starts with a look. Achan's sin began by him seeing this beautiful cloak from Shinar or Babylon. And then after he looked, he covered it. His sinful desires kicked in and he needed it. And after he covered it, he took it and he hid it. You know, the Bible speaks about the desires of our eyes. And so we have to be careful about where we set our eyes. Because often our second look will cause our sinful desires to kick in. And desire gives birth to sin. And sin, as James says, when it is fully grown, gives, brings forth death. Which is exactly what happened in Achan's case. Joshua sent messengers to his tent and they found everything hidden just as he had said. And so Joshua and all the nation of Israel took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and all of his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And all of Israel stoned them with stones and burned them with fire. Now it might seem like a bit harsh that Achan's family was stoned with him and burned with him but it's pretty obvious that they were complicit with him. I mean, he had hid the devoted things in their tent, so they would have known about it. And they'd gone along with him, and they hadn't come clean when given the opportunity. But it is a warning to fathers about the influence that we can have over our families and how our sin can affect the members of our household. And this judgment on Achan might seem harsh to you, that he was stoned and burned with fire, but remember there were 36 men who had lost their lives because of Achan's sin. 
And Achan could have come clean. As I said, on the day when Joshua called that consecration, he could have fell down and called for mercy. He could have come clean when his tribe was identified or his clan was identified or his household was identified. He could have even come clean as he was standing there before Joshua, but he didn't. He didn't come clean. And look down in verse 26. This is how the whole chapter ends. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. That word Accor in Hebrew means trouble, the Valley of Trouble. So they heaped up these stones, this pile of stones over Achan and his family and all of the stuff that had been burned in the Valley of Trouble. Let me ask you a question. Where else have you seen stones before in the book of Joshua? Do you remember? A few weeks ago, we saw in Joshua chapter 4 that the Lord had said to Joshua that he was to get 12 men from each one of the tribes and they were to get a stone out of the midst of the river Jordan that they had crossed over and they were to set up these standing stones at Gilgal. And these stones were to be a memorial to the Lord, a, a memorial that would remind the people of the power and authority, how God's presence was with them, and how God had parted the river Jordan so they'd walked through on dry ground. And he said that this memorial was not only to be for them, but it was be, to be for their children. So you can imagine as a father is walking past Gilgal, his kids might say to him, what are those stones there, Dad? And he might say, well, those stones represent how God has promised to be with us, how he will fight for us, he will be present with his people. But then they would continue walking down a little further and they'd come to the valley of trouble and there would be this other pile of stones. A child might say, what are those stones, Dad? And he'd say, well, those stones, my son, they're a warning. They're a warning against the danger of sin. What sin can do if you hide sin and you harbor sin? That the sin of one can affect everyone. You know, in the Bible, we have both. We have both beautiful passages which speak to us about the grace and power of God, our God is for us. But we also have warning passages which remind us that sin is serious. That if you harbor sin in your life, there'll be serious consequences for sin. Now, earlier in my message, I used the example of the immoral man at Corinth. <laughs> I said that Paul, Paul described this man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law or his father's wife, his stepmother. And I want to say that there is actually a difference between that situation and Joshua chapter 7. You see, Paul was saying that you need, the church needed to discipline that man so that his sin would be exposed so that he could be forgiven and cleansed, and restored. Not so that he could be taken by the community out back and stoned and burned. You know, I know that's what we sometimes do with people who are struggling, and it can feel like that. If you, if you come clean on your sin, that we're just going to ostracize you and put you aside, but that's not what it's about. You see, while... Joshua chapter 7 teaches us this very important principle that the sin of one 
can affect everyone. It also goes the opposite way. Did you realize that? That the obedience of one can be applied to everyone. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, as one man's trespass led to the condemnation of all men, as Adam's sin led to condemnation for all men, he says, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You see, Jesus on the cross, he obeyed God fully and he went to the cross to die on the sin, die on the cross for our sin, and he satisfied God's anger towards our sin so that we don't have to be stoned, we don't have to be burned. <laughs> The judgment of God doesn't have to fall on us. It fell on Jesus. And so we can come clean and we can come forward and we can confess our sins confidently that they have already been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And there is forgiveness, there is healing, there is grace here this morning. You don't have to remain stuck. That hidden sin doesn't have to be keeping you in prison, in bondage anymore, but you can come. You can come, bring your sin out into the light, confess your sin. You'll be forgiven. You'll be cleansed. You'll be restored. God loves you. God loves you. So I pray that today, that if there is, if you feel the nudge of the Holy Spirit, there was someone in the first service who felt that nudge. They felt God really speaking to them. And I believe they, they came forward because there was something hidden in their life. And I believe that after they left this place, they left cleansed. They left different from when they came in. That might be you this morning. That might be you. God might be working in your life right now calling you to bring that sin out into the light so that it be cleansed, it be forgiven, it be set free. Well, let me pray, shall we? Let's, put, let's stand together, let's pray. Lord, we tremble at this passage because there's not a person in this room who hasn't at some time hidden their sin from others. We've all done that. We tremble at this passage, but we are so thankful that just as the sin of one can affect others, the one act of righteousness, of obedience, of Jesus dying for us on the cross also is applied to us. So that we can experience forgiveness and cleansing. And so I pray for anyone who's here this morning who has a big secret, that you'd give them, them the confidence and courage to come forward, to step out into the light and deal with that so that they might be freed from that because you've already freed them from that at the cross. They don't have to hold on to that anymore. thank you that Jesus is our righteousness, that he is the one who died for us. And we worship you, Lord God.